For the last four weeks, we have been studying the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament, a man of courageous devotion. We have already observed his devotion. We've already observed his courage in the past three weeks. But today, we're going to focus on claiming the promises of God. An incident in the life of Elijah in his ministry and following the sequence of these chapters from 1 Kings where we find him at a critical juncture in his life and ministry and how through prayer he claimed the promises of God. So uh, without doing too much review, let me just remind you what we established last week. Last week we saw the encounter between Elijah and King Ahab, uh, Jezebel, and the prophets of Baal. And we saw that this was a major deal as uh, basically in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord speaks to Elijah and said, it's time to go ahead, present yourself to Ahab. And he did so, and then he proposed a face-off, a contest of sorts, to see who was the real God. Is it going to be Baal, or is it going to be Jehovah God? And we, both, we all know that the Lord won the contest, right? And fire fell down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, and the result of that was that the Israelites fell to their faces in repentance. Not the prophets of Baal, but the Israelites realized they had been playing games with God, and they had been flip-flopping in their allegiance and their devotion. As a result of that, Elijah then directed the Israelites to take all of those prophets of Baal, 850, and take them down to the valley and kill them. And so at the end of that, we find ourselves where we're at today, and that has to do with uh, what the Lord spoke to uh, Elijah to do at that critical point. In order to introduce that, I want to make sure that we go back to a scripture that we used on week number one, which is a New Testament reference to Elijah. James chapter 5 verse 17 taught us this, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So then James offers us as an example. Who does he choose? Elijah. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he's just like you and me. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Now we have already seen this example of him praying that it would not rain, right? That was in an earlier week when we found in the beginning of chapter 17, he made the pronouncement to King Ahab and this sturdy, courageous prophet made a declaration that it was not going to rain until God said so. As a result of that, we find him here today at this juncture in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. So he has already made the pronouncement uh, that it was not going to rain. And James tells us that he then later he prayed again that now it would rain. And that's where we find ourselves in the second half of that particular verse. We're going to find him praying today. We're going to find him claiming promises. I want to remind you today before we read the text that God is a God that keeps promises. God is It is a part of his nature, his divine nature. It's a part of who God is. He doesn't lie. 
When God says something, you can count on it. He is faithful to his word. God is not fickle. He is not moody. He doesn't play games with us. He never lies. According to Numbers 13, 28, God is not a man that he should lie. So today what we're going to see and focus on is how this eccentric, courageous prophet, man of God, recalls God's words and promises, and then how he claims them and changes a nation. So on that note, I want to begin reading to you from 1 Kings chapter 18, and you may read along with me if you would like. I'll begin in verse 41. So remember what just happened. Prophets of Baal killed. All right. Then Elijah says to Ahab, Ahab, go eat and drink. (laughs) For there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel. And he bent down to the ground. And he put his face between his knees. Verse 43, he says to his servant, Go and look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked. Came back and he said, there's nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back. Look again. Verse 44. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And so Elijah said, well, go and tell Ahab, tell him this, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Uh, Parenthetically, let me explain. In other words, you better get on your chariot and get back down to Jezreel before the rain is going to soak this ground. It's going to get so muddy, your chariot wheels won't even be able to turn. That's what he warns him. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. How did it start? Teeny tiny little cloud. The sky now grows black with clouds. The wind picked up. A heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel, which was the large, expansive valley just below Mount Carmel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and he tucked his cloak into his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. How many of you agree? That's pretty impressive, right? By the way, it was 13 miles. 13 miles from Mount Carmel down to the area in Jezreel. So, what do we learn from this story? Numerous things, but let me just, the, the, the bottom line of the theme of today's message is God keeps his promises. And that's what I want you to really get. We know that the scripture affirms that in many different places. Jeremiah 1.12 is one of my favorites that says, Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, Jeremiah, for I am watching over my word to perform it. By the way, the word watching literally means I will not fall asleep. I, when I speak a word, I'm going to make sure it comes to pass. So there are some important principles that we can learn today about the fact that God is a God of promises. The first is very obvious, and that is that what? God is a promise-making God. 
From Genesis to Revelation, we have promises, thousands of promises. Someone's taken the time to actually count them and came close to 7,000 promises. I'm not sure about that. I didn't take the time to count them. But there are thousands of promises in the Bible. Amen? And so we know that God is by his nature and by our evidence in Scripture, he is a promise-making God. He is a covenant-making God. And when he says something, the second part comes in, and that is God is a promise-keeping God. It's one thing to make promises. How many of y'all ever known someone who's made a promise but didn't keep it? Anybody y'all know someone like that? This, on the other hand, is, a, is God we're speaking about, and he not only makes promises to us, but he keeps them. And that's something that we all need to remember. Now, there's some confusing things about how people take hold of promises from the Scripture. And I thought I would just spend just a couple of minutes clarifying some things about the promises that we find in the Bible. As I said, the Bible is full of promises. I want to make certain that everybody understands that the Bible is inerrant. It is God's word. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is profitable. It is useful. It is reliable. You can count on it. I believe it is, as Timothy tells, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, I believe it is breathed by God. God breathed. It is inspired. You can put your trust in what God tells us right here. Having said that, having said that, there are some cautionary comments I want to make about how you interpret and apply Scripture to your life. All right? We know that there are commands in Scripture, and when there's a command in Scripture, we need to obey it. There are examples in Scripture. Sometimes there are examples to follow. Sometimes there are examples not to follow. Right? But there are also promises. How do you handle promises when you read them in the Bible. Understand these two distinctions. First of all, there is a difference between what we call general promises and specific promises. So there are some promises that are in Scripture that are so general, they're for anybody and everybody. Then there are some promises that are very specifically aimed at someone. So for example, there are promises that say, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that general or specific? That's general. That's for, obviously, that's for anybody. It's a general promise. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But, for example, in, in 2 Kings, Elisha, that's the successor to Elijah, we see him ministering to a man named Naaman. Do you all remember that? Naaman had leprosy, skin disease. And he told him, he said, Naaman, the Lord is saying, if you will go and you will wash yourself in the Jordan River, seven times you'll be healed. Now that's a promise. That's God promising something. But do you notice that it's very specific? It was for who? Naaman. So if you've got eczema and you think going over to the James River and dipping in it seven times is going to take care of your eczema, go for it. But, but it's not God, okay? God is not saying to you, go dip in the James River seven times for your eczema, all right? Is everybody with me? Why? That was a specific promise for Naaman, not you and me. So we have to discern, don't we? The Bible says we need to learn to 
properly handle the word of truth. There's also an important distinction between unconditional promises and conditional promises. An unconditional promise, for example, we find the promises all through the Old Testament predicting and promising that a Messiah was going to come. And it describes who, what that Messiah was going to be like. Promises about the Messiah. Was that a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? Unconditional. God was saying this is going to happen. You can't change it. You can't do anything about it. It's going to happen. Guess what? Jesus is going to come back a second time. And it's general. I mean, it's, it's unconditional. You can't stop it. It's going to happen. All right? That is unconditional. But there are many promises in the Bible that are conditional. Meaning that in order for us to claim them for ourselves, we have to actually meet a contingency. Now, Christians generally don't like conditions. We would rather treat all promises as unconditional. And we throw them around and we quote them like, like we don't know what we're doing. Let me just give you one quick example. Psalms chapter 37 and verse 5 reads, Delight yourself in the Lord, and the Lord will give you what? The desires of your heart. Now, what we do is we like the second half of that, James. We like to say, the Lord's going to give me the desires of my heart. The Bible says the Lord's going to give me the desires of my heart. Is that true? Partially. What kind of promise is that? Conditional. In order to get the second half, you got to read the first half of the verse. Delight if you will delight yourself in the Lord. That means to have fellowship with him, to so love him that you align yourself with his will. And the result of that is what? He works on your heart. He changes your desires. And then the result is what? Then the Lord is going to give you even the very desires of your heart. It doesn't mean, hmm, I think I want 13 Mercedes Benz. That's the desire of my heart. Okay, whatever. Uh, Whatever it may be, the question is, are you delighting yourself in the Lord? And is that a desire that he has reigned in on your, in your heart? That doesn't mean a lot of times God won't just bless you with stuff that sometimes he blesses us with stuff we don't need. He just does it to show us how much he loves us because he loves the prospering of his people. But we need to understand there are conditions. You can't just take a scripture out of context, jerk it out, and apply it to your life. That's dangerous business. I've watched people miss the will of God and go way off into left field just because they did not follow and interpret Scripture properly. So what does this suggest that you and I need to do? Well, we need to read carefully. We need to learn to be students of the Word. We need to be people who don't do like this. Oh, that's my promise for today. You better be careful because sometimes you end up on a verse that tells you to do stupid things. All right, so be really, really careful for that. So we need to read. We need to study. We need to learn to look at the context of the verse. And we need to use keen discernment to know, is this specific or is it general? Is it conditional or is it unconditional? Is everybody listening to me? All right, good. So now having given you those comments about generally speaking about promises in scripture, let me now just, let's jump back to Elijah. 
Now, what had happened in Elijah's life is that actually it was God's promises and direction that brought Elijah on the scene in the first place. God spoke to him and said, now it's time for you to go and confront Ahab. King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, they'd already led them into pagan worship. And guess who shows up? Elijah shows up. Now look at how prominent these promises are in Elijah's life. I want you to notice promise, result. Promise, result. Look at it very quickly. 1 Kings chapter 17. This is review for some of you who've been in previous Sundays. 1 Kings 17 verse 1. He stands for Ahab and he says what? This was the word of the Lord that came to the prophet. Now he's saying it to Ahab. He said, I'm here to tell you that my God lives. Your gods are false. And I'm here to tell you there ain't going to be no more rain until God says so. What was the result? No more rain for three and a half years. Promise. Result. Then what? Then the Lord, while there's no more rain going on, while there's this extended drought going on in Israel and people are starving and stuff, what happened to Elijah? We know that in verse 4, the Bible says that God told him to go to a specific brook. And he said, in there, I'm going to give you water. And he said this, I've commanded the ravens to feed you. Remember when we studied that? I've commanded the ravens, and they're going to feed you. What happened when he went to the brook? There was water fresh water. He had water supply and he had a food supply actually delivered to him by ravens in the morning and in the evening. What's the point? God made a promise and he saw the fulfillment. And then the brook dried up, the raven stopped delivering. And then the Lord said, what in verse eight, he said, now I want you to go to Zarephath because I've commanded a widow over there and she's going to take care of you. Now, as suspicious as that sounded, he (laughs) obeyed it. He obeyed it followed it. And what, what happened? Miracles happened while I was there, right? The barrel didn't run out. All kinds of stuff was happening there, but the end result was what? The widow, God used the widow to provide for Elijah and he saw it work. What is happening? What I want you to see is what is happening with Elijah? He is learning. He is stretching his faith. God is developing him as a man of God, as a prophet. Why? He's got bigger challenges to come. And so what's happened is he's learned when God says something, I can take it to the bank. I can count on it. He's not like other people that deceive me and lead me astray. When God makes a promise, I can take it to the bank. That's what he's learning. And then once again, in chapter 18 and verse 1, I mean, this was a big deal that we looked at last Sunday. And God speaks to him and said, now go and present yourself to Ahab. And then he puts a promise. So here's direction and a promise. You go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send the rain. It's time to turn back the faucets of the rain. Now, by the way, that one right there, what is that? What kind of promise is that? Unconditional or conditional? Conditional. Do you think if he hadn't, if, if he, do you think that if Elijah had not gone to the brook, that God would have, that he stayed in the palace. What do you think would have happened with him? He could have died of starvation. What do you think would have happened if he said, well, I'm really a little bit intimidated by Ahab. I don't know if I'm ready to go to Ahab, talk to Ahab right now. He probably wouldn't have seen rain, at least in the season that it was planned. Point being what? 
He's growing, developing his understanding that God's promises can be trusted. He had a part to play. God had a part to play. And the result was what? Well, we just got through reading it. The Lord did send the rain, right? So what do we, what do we see here? We see a promise that comes very clearly in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1 that I just read to you, which says what? Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will do what? I'm going to send rain. So verse 2 tells us now he did his part. Verse 2 goes on to say, so <laughs> it's really good to be obedient, isn't it? God said, go show yourself to Ahab. I'll provide rain. So Ahab went to Ahab. Now, see, this, that's the way it's supposed to work. The way we do it is God tells us something. We go, hmm. well, what if, and, but how could that happen? Because I only get paid this much. And why, you, the doctor said this. Elijah was simple enough in his faith. He heard it, believed it. He acted on it. So Elijah in verse 41, where our text began today, now Elijah says to Ahab, he's already seen all this stuff happen in between. I mean, they saw fire fall down. They killed all the false prophets. And so now at the end of that, I bet by this point, Ahab is shaking in his boots thinking, "Uh oh, am I next? And Elijah surprises us with this word. And he says, he says to the king, he goes to Ahab in verse 41. I'm not sure if I had that back up there or not. Yeah, I do. So he goes to the king and he says this, Elijah said to Ahab, go and drink. Just go and party. Just have a big meal and drink all the water, everything you want. Why? Because I hear a sound of heavy rain, heavy rain. They had had not a drop for three and a half years. He said, I don't only hear rain. I hear the sound of a heavy rain. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Elijah was actually hearing rain? No, I don't either. I believe he was hearing God's voice that told him, you do this, and then the rain's going to come. He had already fulfilled his condition. Now what was happening? Only thing left to happen was the outpouring of rain. He knew it was now time. And he sensed in his heart, now, you, now I'm ready to do this. In the spirit, he could hear the sound of heavy rain. Before you see things manifest in your life, you need to know on the inside, God's ready to do this in my life. He heard the sound of heavy rain on the inside of himself, and he spoke it out. Now, I know my time is short, but I'm going to take five extra minutes, and I'm going to give you six lessons on prayer that we glean from this story because they're very simple, they're very obvious, all right? So I'm going to give you six lessons on prayer from the text that we read. We just read five verses. So you say, how can you get six lessons out of five verses? Well, we're going to do it. All right, number one, first lesson. He separated himself. So after he said that to Ahab, the scripture says he turned and went back to Mount Carmel. So the prophet goes back. It's kind of interesting contrast, isn't it? He tells the king, just go party. But he went to prayer. 
He went up to Mount Carmel to pray. Why did he need to go back up to Mount Carmel? Because he needed solitude. He was going to have to pray. And this is very important that you understand. The promise has been spoken. He just got through saying, get ready, I'm hearing the sound of rain. But the man of God does what? Goes to pray. Most of us would just be sitting around waiting for the rain. Ready for it to rain. He went to prayer. He understood. He separated himself. He climbed up there and noticed, his, noticed the posture. He bent down to the ground and he put his face between his knees. That's a prayer posture. And it speaks clearly to us. He is separating himself. He wanted to avoid the distractions and have a place to pray. And Mount Carmel was one of his favorites. Do you have a place of prayer? Do you have a place that you can avoid distractions? Or do you try to pray with a hundred things going on around you? I really believe a missing element, a lot of our behavior and our discipline of prayer is we don't have an established place. I'm not saying you have to be at that place every time you pray. You can pray all day long. You can be constantly in a spirit of prayer, but you need to have a place. How many of y'all saw a war room? Okay. She had a place. I mean, she had a place of prayer, right? There's something to be said for having a place. You can pray a whole lot of places, but you need to have somewhere that you can go, whether it's in your, in your house, outside of the house, wherever. When I first was filled with the Holy Spirit, when I was uh, 17 years old, I had a little uh, overlook hill in the, in the hill country of Texas. And it was my favorite place because it was a, about 10 minutes away from town, away from the craziness of my house, and away from everything that was going on, all my friends. And I usually knew that nobody would be up there. And I could look out and see for miles and miles and miles. And there, there the Lord spoke to me many times as I saw him. We all need a place of prayer. Number two, he humbled himself. When we see him down on his knees and look, what, look at his posture, he's now got his head between his knees. He's kneeling down. What does that suggest to us? He's humbling himself. See, it speaks of his attitude of in prayer. He's humbling himself. When you start praying, uh, we need to make sure that at least, uh, you're, I'm not saying you always have to take that posture, but you need to, at least need to have the attitude. The attitude of heart of, I'm not, I'm not, uh, it's not about me, this is about God. And, and James tells us that we ought to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will do the exalting. But sometimes we get kind of cocky and self-exalted. We try to exalt ourselves, but you need to always remember, avoid arrogance and always adopt an attitude of humility when you're praying. And that's what he did. The third lesson, he was passionate. Maybe I'm reading something into this in my just imagination, but somehow I'm, I see Elijah, I think it was his very nature. He was always passionate. He had this deep sense of, of energy, spiritual energy. And as he's on, I can see him praying, praying, claiming the promise, waiting for the rain, passionately going after God. And there's something to be said for fervent praying. Acts 12, 5 tells us that the church, when Peter was put in prison, how do they pray? Earnestly, the church prayed for Peter. 
James 5, 16, in the prior verse to the verse 17 we already read that talks about the prayers of Elijah, it says what? The fervent prayers, the fervent prayers, the word fervent means hot with fire. How passionate are you when you pray? Unfortunately, many people in different kinds of denominations and churches and religions are taught to pray very, very sophisticated, formal prayers. I believe it's easy to be Phariseeic if you take that approach. I think prayer ought to be real, authentic, and when you mean business with God, I think you ought to express that to God. There are times to be silent in prayer, and there's times to shout so loud that the demons can hear you. Yeah. Passionate. Number four, he understood prayer. He understood some principles of prayer that most contemporary Christians do not. What do I mean by that? He knew the answer to the question, why pray? Have you asked yourself that question? If you're halfway normal, you have. Well, I don't understand. If God's in control, God is sovereign, why do I need, little old me, why do I need to pray? Why doesn't God just do it? Because there is a law of prayer that God has chosen the way things work. And the way things work is he does his part in heaven and he partners with you and me on earth to make a difference here. There is a difference between the spiritual realm, which is invisible, and the natural realm, which is tangible. He understood that my prayers, I have the promises of God on this thing. I've got the word of the Lord on this thing, but I got to pray. I can't just lay back, kick back, chill out, go party, just waiting for the manifestation. No, he was praying until he knew he saw the manifestation in this natural arena. Prayer is what allows you to operate your faith to lay hold of the promise and to bring it into exercise and manifestation in your daily life. Many of you have been sitting around with promises that God has made to you personally, prophetically, in the Scripture. You have promises. Maybe they're conditional. You've already met the condition. And you're saying, well, I just don't know why I haven't seen it yet. Because many times there's a delay. And many times you have to stay in prayer in order to claim that promise and make it a reality. Until it's a reality, in other words, manifested here in this earthly realm, your role is stand in the gap, reminding God of his promise. God, you said it was going to rain. I'm here. I'm praying for rain. I'm standing in the gap. God, I'm waiting for rain. He's already promised it. What are you doing? Say, well, why should I even pray? God's already promised it because that is the partnership between you and heaven. Is this making any sense? He understood, Elijah understood that principle. He got it. And as a result, that's why he was praying so diligently that day. Oh, there's so much I could tell you about the principle of prayer. Andrew Murray said, the powers of the eternal world have been placed at the prayer's disposal. It is the very essence of true religion, the channel of blessing, the secret of power and life. Spurgeon said, prayer is the believer's weapons of war. When the battle's too hard for us, 
We call in our great ally who has it were lies in ambush until faith gives the signal by crying out, Arise, O Lord. Prayer is the slender nerve which unleashes the muscles of an omnipotent God. I like that last phrase. Billheimer, Paul Billheimer, one of my favorites, says, Prayer is not begging God to do something which he doesn't want to do. It is not overcoming his reluctance. It is implementing enforcing the victory of Jesus over the devil. It is implementing upon earth heaven's decisions concerning the affairs of men. If that were not so, why would Jesus in his prayer instruction say, pray like this, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what if it's God's will? Why? Why? It's not automatic. It's dependent on how you're going to agree with it. Why would God say, I'm waiting. I can't intervene unless I have someone who's standing in the gap and interceding. Why do those scriptures exist? Because it's God's methodology in order to act on earth. He is connected with you and me, and he's waiting on your prayers. Your prayers or what activate your faith and bring things to pass. Number five, he was persistent. He's an incredible guy. He just didn't refuse. He, I mean, he refused to give up. He said to his servant, go look towards the sea over there. That was where the weather movements came from. He went over and looked, came back and said, nothing's there. Now, most of us today would say, well, I must have missed God. Not Elijah. Go back again. Came back, Mm-mm. go back again. Seven times he persisted, persevered, going back, sending his servant to look. What's he doing? He's praying. Notice he didn't even stop his praying to go look. He sent his servant to go look. He was standing in that gap, claiming that promise. He was simply waiting to know when it began to manifest. And on the seventh trip, the servant came back and said, well, prophet, there's not much out there, but I saw this tiny little cloud. Looked like maybe the size of a man's hand up in the, cl- up in the sky. Tiny little cloud. That was all Elijah needed. Just that natural evidence was all he needed to know the timing is now. The rain is right here. It's, that which is small is going to grow. Some of you have seen things that look like the size of God's hand. Uh, I mean, a man's hand is small, little evidence of an answer. What you need to do is understand that that is the beginning of more. You need to just keep praying, keep claiming, keep believing that the little cloud is going to turn into a big one. And it said it wasn't long before that's exactly what happened, right? He understood that there was something different between just seeing with the eyes of faith and actually then seeing in the natural. We have to see with the eyes of faith before we can see the result in the natural. And he was persistent. He was also expectant. And this is the last point. He was expectant. He, the whole time, 
He was up on Mount Carmel praying. He was expecting. He already knew what was going to happen. And then when he saw the small cloud, he immediately said to his servant, what? Go tell Ahab. Time. In fact, I believe he tells him, go tell him, because if he doesn't start on his trip now to Jezreel, there's going to be so much rain and mud, he's going to get stuck. So just tell him, go ahead and start now, because the rain is coming. Servant went to let him know, and Ahab hopped in his chariot, took off. Amazing how obedient Ahab is becoming to everything that Elijah is telling him to do now, isn't it? So he says it's time to go. He hops in his chariot. He takes off. By this point, heavy, dark clouds collecting. Now it starts pouring down rain, pouring down rain. And can you picture this as, as we wrap this up? It's just a picture you've got to get in your mind. Elijah takes off from Mount Carmel running after Ahab. I think he just wanted to say, see? I told you what God said. 13 miles. This guy was not only courageous and devoted, he was athletic. He was in shape. 13 miles. Talk about speedy Olympic running. He ran 13 miles in a sprint and caught up with the chariot who had left previously. supernaturally God can even make you run fast the spirit of the Lord came upon his man made him run fast if he can make an old prophet run fast he can take care of you he can make your life different if we simply put our faith in his promises there was an old hymn we used to sing the Baptist church. And it said, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing on the promises of God. You and I need to learn to stand, pray, and claim the promises that belong to us. Would you stand to your feet? prayer teams come forward please I've gone over a little bit today but I hope that you gleaned something for yourself from this message that will make a difference in just a moment I'm going to pray for you but if you need prayer if you have a decision you want to make in your life for Jesus Christ today maybe it's a recommitment Maybe you've been far from God and it's time to get right with Him. Maybe you've just not been living by faith. You've just been living by religion. You need to come forward today and have someone pray with you. Maybe you need a touch from God and you can't come tonight to the special gathering. Come now. Let one of these teams pray with you. Would you allow me to pray for all of us right now? And then Todd is going to come and just bless you as you're dismissed. Lord God. Teach us to pray. Teach us by Elijah's model 
what it means to stay in prayer, not just to pray for a 30-second prayer, but to remain in prayer until we see the answer, even though it may be small as a cloud the size of a man's hand. Lord God, we thank you that we can rely on your promises. We can take it to the bank. We thank you, God, as we read and study the Word of God, we pray that you would highlight, Holy Spirit, for us promises. Promises that are for us. Lord, let our lives enter into all the fullness of abundance in every way as we learn to lay hold and claim what's going on in heaven that it might be true here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. And I do speak a blessing over your life today. You're coming, you're going, you're staying. May you sense God's peace and joy and rest over all that you do. I hope to see you tonight. If not, we'll see you next week.